Acts chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 23. Let me just read just one verse. That just, it's just kind of a summary verse that Paul uses, and then we'll jump into what takes place in Ephesus. In verse 23, he says, After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strength, stre- excuse me, strengthening all the disciples. So if you remember last time, he finished his second missionary journey, went to Jerusalem, checked in with the church there, and then went back up to Antioch of Syria. And, uh, and he's there, and, and he jumps right back out. He's, we don't know how long he's there in Antioch, maybe six months or so. And he says, you know what, it's time to go again. And he, and he, and he goes, he leaves his home in Antioch in Syria and visits the churches that he had just planted and that he had just worked with in the first two missionary journeys. And so he spends a little time with each, each of the believers in, the, in, these, uh, in these cities and he, and he goes through it. And in one little verse, Luke summarizes a 1,500-mile trip. Uh, so we don't know everything that he did there, but we know that he's on, on the road again. As, uh, Paul was the original Willie Nelson. He's on the road again. So let's pick it up in verse 24 because Luke takes a little, little detour here. And he begins to tell us about another character that we have not, a person we have not met yet, uh, but he becomes important and we actually, he becomes very important in the church in Corinth and Paul writes a little bit about him, but Luke tells us a little bit of, about his story and he probably includes it here because uh, the man's name is Apollos. He was probably very well known in the early church and, and so Luke includes him. Uh, so that the readers would understand a little bit about his origin, his story, where he came from. So verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of, of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to to Achaia, or that's Greece, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's actually doing very similar things to what Paul did, speaking to the Jews and showing them from scripture. But let's talk about Apollos a little bit. We're told that he's a Jew from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was in Egypt. It's on the north coast of of, uh, Egypt, right there on the Mediterranean Sea, just a little bit west of the Nile River. And uh, the city was founded by Alexander the Great. That's how it got its name, Alexandria. It was founded by Alexander the Great in 323 B.C. And, uh, and in the first century, uh, during the days of Paul, it had a population of about a million. So this was, a, it was the second largest city in the Roman, Roman Empire. And it had a Jewish population, get this, of about 400,000 in the northeastern uh, part of the city. So it was a major center for, Jew, for the Jews and a major population center. It was also... Very well known. It was an educational center. It was famous for its university uh, that it had there. And uh, it, it actually eventually became uh, a, a, a great center for uh, Christian education and thought 
and later on, well after Paul's day. So this man Apollos is from there. So he's coming from this city known for its, uh, for its educational abilities, and, and, uh, and he himself is very well educated. And, and we're told that he's eloquent in speech and that he was powerful in his use of Old Testament scriptures. And he was so enthusiastic uh, about Jesus that it says that he spoke with great fervor. Uh, but, but Luke, however, does not say that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here he is. He's this great man, this great communicator, very well educated. But he still had gaps in his understanding of the full gospel. We do know he was a believer in Jesus. We're told that. Uh, because he says that he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah based on Old Testament scripture, yet he only knew the baptism of John. So what does that really mean? Well, apparently he had believed in Jesus based on teaching he had received from the, the disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had, had taught and said the Messiah is coming. And then uh, he proclaimed, and, he, and, and, and as a matter of fact, you remember at the baptism of Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He, and he, John the Baptist says, This is him. So apparently Apollos had believed that Jesus is the Messiah that John had been proclaiming was coming, but he had not heard everything fully yet. And so even though he was an, a brilliant man, he needed, there was some more that he needed to learn. And so Priscilla and Aquila... They heard this guy show up from Apollo, from Alexandria, and they heard him teaching, and they said, oh, man. I mean, I mean just imagine their, you know, their thoughts. This guy, he really knows his stuff. He's, he's exactly right in, in using these Old Testament scriptures and pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah, but, but he, there's some things that he doesn't know yet, obviously. And so they invited him over to their, to their place, we don't know he may have stayed with them the way that Paul did. Very, very possible. Uh, we don't know that for sure. Uh, but the, the, the great thing about Apollos, I think is so important for us, is that even though he was a, a brilliant man, even though he was extremely well-educated, even though he was uh, thought of as being an eloquent speaker, he was still teachable. That's amazing to me. You know, he could have easily rejected uh, the teaching of, 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 of Priscilla and Aquila when they brought him in and began to teach him more fully the ways of Jesus. He could have easily look at, looked at them and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, Priscilla and Aquila, I, I appreciate your fervor here, but what school did you go to? And they would have said, well, we didn't go to school, not like Alexandria. Uh, okay, well, then when you're as educated as I am, come talk to me then. But that's not the attitude. He, the fact is, because he did not hesitate to be a student, the truth was he became a, an even better teacher. Because he said, I'm not too big and too smart to be a learner, to sit under someone else that maybe hasn't had the same educational uh, 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 opportunities that I have had. He said, I'm going to still learn. I'm still, I still haven't arrived. There's still more that I need to know. And because he was willing to be a teacher, he became, excuse me, a, willing to be a student, he became a better teacher. Now, let me ask you this. What lesson can we learn from uh, the way that Apollos accepted the teaching of Priscilla and Aquila? What lessons do you think we can learn from that? Humility, that's a good one. 
Anything else? That really sums it up. <laughs> Anything else that you say, it's going to boil down to humility in, in one sense. But, but you know, we, we learn the truth is it doesn't matter how much knowledge we have. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how many books you've read. It doesn't matter how many sermons you've listened to. It doesn't matter how many years you've been in school. It doesn't matter how many degrees are hanging on your wall. We still have to remain teachable, which brings us to that, that core of humility. Because, listen, you know, pride will keep us from hearing what anybody else has to say. It will keep us from learning. Because pride will tell us, you got this all figured out. You're doing good. You don't need any more. You don't need any help. You don't need anybody else. And, and we have to remain teachable. You know, another lesson that may be a little, little more hidden in this, that teaches us, how many of you have ever had to correct anybody in your life? Ever had to do that? Yeah, of course, if you've had children, you've had to correct them. Uh, but listen, anytime you have to approach another believer or somebody else because um, they are, you know, they're, maybe they're uh, latching on to a, a belief that sounds good, but it's not scriptural, or maybe they're not living up to the scripture. There's an issue there. Here, here's, I want you to notice what Priscilla and Aquila did. They didn't stand up in the middle of the synagogue in front of everybody else and say, hey, Apollos, you got most of it right, but here's where you're wrong. There was no public correction in that situation. We learned that it's best to correct in, in private without the public humi humiliation. So this is the problem that, that <laughs> we see it every day on Facebook. Because somebody's like, you know, they, they're, they're going to post something about, oh, so-and-so, you did this, and you, you know, you're this and this, you're that, that, and you, you need to change this, you need to do this. And now what you've done, you've taken a matter that should have been handled face-to-face -face with a private conversation, and you've taken it public, and your whole goal is not really to help that person to grow or to help them deal with the situation. Your whole goal is to humiliate them and to get people on your side. And so that's a, that's a lesson for us to learn, you know, that, that, uh, that correction or, you know, teaching someone where they, when, they're, when they're deficient in an area is best done whenever possible in private to approach them personally and, and to do it in a way that's done in, in love. Now, that doesn't mean that, that it never goes public because there are times when uh, something is done publicly and so something needs to be uh, it needs to be handled at times publicly. Uh, and, and that's more in the sense of, say, I'll give you an example. You know, you hear stories all the time about pastors who, who have a moral failure and that sort of thing. Well, you know, you don't approach that as a board member, for example. You don't approach that and say, well, let's just handle this quietly. Um, you know, it's a public sin, and, and, and then eventually it has to be addressed publicly. That, that's a whole different situation but what I'm talking about on a one-to-one -one personal basis, that, that's another lesson we can learn from this, is that we always first approach privately and talk with a person individually. So anyway, uh, they, they explained the way of Jesus more fully to him. And then uh, after that, Apollos it, it, it apparently is, is feeling led by God to go to Corinth. He, 
he wants to go over there. He wants to, he needs to head over to that place. That's where he feels like God wants him. And, and, and so we know that, uh, you know, whether he's, you know, he probably hadn't been filled with the spirit before, but now that we know he is because uh, he's considered on par with Paul in, in Corinth. In fact, Paul calls him an apostle in, in, uh, in his letter. And, and so we know he was filled with the spirit, but uh, he goes to the city of Corinth. And remember, Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth. So this is a well-established church, but he goes there and God uses him in, a, in amazing ways. And it says he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. And so God really used Apollos in some, in some fantastic ways in the church in the city of Corinth. But you know what happened? As often happens, uh, Apollos' abilities uh, eventually created a problem. Because some of the Corinthian believers became more enamored with Apollos than even with his message. And what happened was, and, and we're not going to read it tonight, but you can read it in, in uh, Corinthians where Paul talked, uh, wrote to the church there. But basically an, an Apollos fan club started up. And then, you know, and some people say, huh, you know, I'm, I'm a follower. I'm with Apollos. I mean, this guy is amazing. He's so eloquent. He's not like that Paul. You know, he, he's just not Paul. Every, he just speaks down to the masses. Apollos, he's, he's amazing. He's so educated. He's eloquent. I'm with Apollos. And then, then you had people that responded to that and they started saying, well, you know what? I am a Paul. You can follow him, but I'm with the guy that started the church here in Corinth. I'm going to stick with him. I'm a Paul. And then there were others that responded, both of those, and they were maybe more right, uh, depending on how the, the attitude was, because others in the church began to say, well, I'm of Christ, you know, sounded, so, which is true, but, but if it's done with the attitude of, well, I'm much more spiritual than you, then, you know, then you've got a whole different issue there. And, and, and anyway, we know, now there is no evidence that Apollos encouraged this behavior, uh, uh, because Paul never blamed Apollos for it, but eventually Paul had to actually confront the Corinthians about this divisiveness and say, listen, you know, it, it, it's not about whether you're of Apollos or Paul, or he's, it, he said it's not about us. He's, this is about Jesus. And, and the lesson for us is that we need to be glad for God's gifts, but always remember that they're given to bring honor to him. He is the point. His glory is the issue. You know, and any person that uses an ability or talent in a way that calls undue attention to him or herself, that person is not honoring God, and that's a sinful uh, situation. We've got to be really careful. Appreciate the gift, but more than that, praise the giver of the gifts. And we see it, you know, you know uh, I mean, uh, you know, say a pastor has been at a church for a long time, and he's very well loved, and... Uh, you know, everybody just looks up to him, and then the Lord moves him someplace else. And then, you know, this is how it plays out in every day in the church today. Then it comes time, even before a new, new pastor comes, there's some in the church who are saying, well, they're not like so-and-so. It's not going to be, you know, I, they're not going to be like them. And, and then the, maybe the new pastor comes, and they're, and they're saying, well, it's just not the same. Of course it's not the same. It's a different person, right? It's, it's always going to be different. Uh, but the point of that, the point of this, the whole thing there is that God 
moves his people where he wants them. He puts them where he wants them. And, and, and it's not about whether, you know, whether it, it, it's our favorite or not. Does that make any sense? And, and so, you know, the fact was, God had Paul at this time in Ephesus because Ephesus needed Paul. And he put Apollos during that time in Corinth because Corinth needed Apollos. But the point that Paul made was, listen, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. It's God that did the work. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos. He's the one that's doing something. And, and he knows where he wants to plant his people and where he puts us in for the ministry that he has for us during any given time. And so that's where... You know, instead of saying, well, you know, I, I really, it drives me nuts. Um, uh, you know, it's not just with preachers, by the way. Uh, we do this thing in churches today, especially a church that's been around for a long time. You, you'll hear something like, I remember the good old days. Boy, I remember the good old days. Well, first of all, I want to tell you, the good old days probably weren't as good as you remember them because we tend to remember things, you know, a little more idealized. You probably had issues going on that either you weren't aware of or that you've forgotten about and then you don't want to go back to again. Uh, but there's, but there's, there's a scripture in Ecclesiastes. Someday I want to preach through, I have these, all these th great things I want to preach through these verses, these different passages. But there's a, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes and I wish I'd have thought about this before earlier today, and I would have looked it up to, so I could read it to you verbatim. But it says something along the lines of it says, it says, do not say. Everybody say, do not say. Do not say. Okay, what does do not say mean? It means do not say. It's real complicated. It says, do not say, why were the old days better? That, that is an exact quote, by the way, at least from my tra the translation I used. Do not say, why were the old days better? Because it is not from wisdom that you say this. He's saying, listen, don't, don't be living in the past. Don't say, why were the old days better? Because he's, he, he, what he, the Ecclesiastes says, it says, because the God of the old days is still the God of the new days. And so it's all about him, not about, not about the way we did things or the pastor who was leading at the time or any of those things. It's all about him. I could have just summed this all up a lot more quickly if I just stopped right there. But it's all about him. So let's read on because now we get to uh, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And this is where... Paul returns to Ephesus because you remember on his at the end of his second journey he went to Ephesus for a very short period of time and he told them he said I will be back if the Lord wills well now he's kept that promise he's coming back to Ephesus he says while Apollos was at Corinth Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus there he found some disciples and asked them do you believe the Holy excuse me did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that, that's a difficult phrase to translate. Um, it, it, it's, it, you know, knowing what they know, it's, it'd be hard to believe that they didn't, could not even know that there was a Holy Spirit. It probably means we, do, we don't even know that, that the Holy Spirit is available. Uh, probably is what, what the sense of the, means, uh, the, of the sentence means. So Paul asked, then, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. 
Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 uh, men in all. So here Paul goes back to Ephesus. And the first story we hear uh, is these 12 men that he, that he comes in contact with. And these men were, were definitely Christians, but just like Apollos, uh, their, their knowledge was defective. They were, they were similar to Apollos in that they only knew of the baptism of John, but they were believers. So probably the same situation where they were converts of, of uh, followers of, of John, uh, but they, and so they believed that, that Jesus was the Messiah that John was talking about, but, but they hadn't received the gospel fully. And they, they uh, you know, they, matter of fact, it's very possible, it's even possible that, that Apollos may have preached to them at one time, and that's where they came to their knowledge that they had. Uh, but Paul asked the question of these, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, when you believed? Or some translations say, since you believed. Now, why is that question significant? Because you need the Holy Spirit? Well, here's the thing. He said, when you believe. So, it indicates, number one, it's important, because Paul sees them as believers. That's significant. But it also indicates that Paul recognizes that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience that is subsequent to salvation. He says, uh, he didn't just say, do you believe? He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, when you believed? And so uh, these men responded to that by saying, we, we, we haven't even heard that the Holy Spirit is available. So they obviously have not heard about the day of Pentecost. They don't know what's, uh, what has been happening. So, so he says, then what baptism did you receive? They had been baptized according to John the Baptist's teaching, and Paul explained to them that John, his baptism was a baptism of repentance, it was a baptism of anticipation, and that the one who John anticipated was Jesus. And they heard that, and they said, okay, well, you know, yeah, we're, I'm on board with all of this. And so then Paul baptized them again in the name, or, or and when we say in the name, that means in the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then after he did all of that, so we know that they're saved, we, they're baptized in water, now he lays his hands on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and spoke in tongues, and prophesied. This was very similar to the events in Samaria. You remember the revival that broke out in Samaria when Philip uh, the evangelist went there, and then later uh, Peter and John went, and he laid, they would lay hands on people, and they would receive the Holy Spirit. Very similar situation in that uh, when hands were laid on them after they believed, they were filled with the Spirit. Well, and again, in this situation, we've talked about it several times, uh, the, there's only one consistent outward sign ever mentioned uh, about the, that was an outward sign uh, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's only one that was consistently mentioned every time that, it, that we're told, and that is speaking in tongues. Now, and here, as you can see, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So other gifts can happen at the same time. But the only thing that we know for sure, every time we're told, they spoke in tongues. That's the initial physical evidence. Now, I want to pause and I say this. I try to emphasize this so much. We say that, but we cannot fall into the trap when you're seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
cannot fall into the trap of seeking tongues. That may be the sign that it happens, but the problem with seeking tongues is as soon as you speak in tongues, you think you're done and you quit and it's over and you say, I got it. But that's not what it's about. It's about seeking Jesus. It's about seeking the fullness of the Holy Spirit and His power in your life. It's really not about even receiving as much as it is about surrendering. Uh, I've used the illustration before, even in here, about when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you when you're saved. So it's not like you don't have His presence uh, because you can't be saved without the Holy Spirit. But if you have a pitcher of water and a glass and you, and you pour that water into the glass, that'd be, that's a picture of getting saved because, because you have the Spirit of God inside of you. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is baptism? Baptism is, is, is more than just a filling, isn't it? When you're baptized in water, do you just take water inside of you? No, what do you do? You're immersed in the water, aren't you? And so baptism of the Holy Spirit would be like taking that glass that is full of water and then dropping it in the pitcher. Not only is it filled, but it is overwhelmed. It is surrounded. It is, it is immersed in that water. And baptism of the Holy Spirit is not about getting some of the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's about surrendering your life to Him in such a way that He's got all of you. It's not about what we get. It's about what we give to Him. And in response to giving ourselves to Him, He fills us with His power and He makes Himself available to us fully. And, 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 and so that's what we're after. We're not after, if you're just saying, I want to speak in tongues, I want to speak in tongues, you're missing, you're missing the whole point. And if that's your goal, if that's your mindset, then you'll miss out on the greater things that He has for you and, and for your life. Now, and so... You know, now listen, I want you to, I want you to, to speak in tongues. That's, even Paul, he said, listen, I speak in tongues more than all. Of, I think he was Southern because he said, I speak in tongues more than y'all. He was from Southern Galatia. So, so I want you to do it. It's important. It's powerful in our lives. Scripture says that when a man speaks in an unknown tongue, he edifies himself. There is a strengthening that takes place. In your spirit when you when you pray in tongues so I encourage you like Paul speak in tongues every day pray every day in the spirit take some time you know when you're driving down the highway you know when you're listening to praise and worship you just just begin to pray in the spirit it builds you up so that you're ready for whatever he has for you next anyway I hadn't planned on sharing any of that but let's keep reading verse 8 Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. There's a, one of the instances where Christianity is called the way, which we'll talk about that in another time. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know who Tyrannus is. He may have been the owner of the hall, or it may have been a lecture hall that he was the teacher in, that he taught, we don't really know. And it says in verse 19, This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. 
Now, uh, uh, I, I want to say this. When it says there that all the Jews and, Gentiles and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, what we know is just what Paul, his plan was, he would go to the major metropolitan area. He would preach and teach and disciple and then those people would go out and take the gospel. And so there are churches being planted that, that are the result of Paul's ministry that he's not even the one that's actually planting those churches. But uh, we're told here he goes into the synagogue and he begins just like he normally does. He begins to, to debate with the Jews and he does it for three months. So we see here that opposition in Ephesus grew more slowly than in most other cities. Most other cities they got stirred up a little earlier than this. Um, but after three months, some of the Jews, this is, it, it's interesting because it doesn't say most, doesn't say many, it says some, some of the Jews uh, in the synagogue became obstinate and abusive and, and Paul had to leave the synagogue. And, and by the way, one of the obvious lessons from the book of Acts is that excellent ministry always meets exceptional opposition. The, 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 the more you're working, the more you're doing for the kingdom of God, the more you're being used by Jesus, the, the more the enemy will oppose you. And we see that all through the book of Acts. Believers who are serious in their quest to live faithfully for Jesus and proclaim the good news of the, of the gospel will encounter stiff resistance whether it's physical or spiritual, uh, it, it, you will encounter stiff resistance and possibly even severe persecution. Not as likely here in this country, but in many places around the world, that's the reality for Christians. You know, it's no wonder that Jesus told his, his followers to count the cost. You know, he told them, he said, listen, it's going to cost you something to follow me. Count the cost. He said, count the cost, and, 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 because there is a heavy price to be paid for faithfulness. But, but the cost is nothing compared to the glory that awaits those who determine to trust and obey the Lord. See, following Jesus is expensive in terms of time, in terms of effort, in terms of energy, in terms of material resources. It's expensive. In fact, to follow Jesus, you know what it costs? Everything. Everything that I am and everything that I, that I have, it all belongs to him if I'm a follower of Jesus. So the question is, have you counted the cost? And maybe more importantly, are you willing to pay the price? So Paul, after this opposition, he moved his preaching and his teaching to Tyrannus' school. As I said, we don't know who he was, but he taught there for two years. And from what we know from, from different sources, he probably taught there every day from about 11 a.m. in the morning till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Every day. Um, and, and then he would work in the morning and in the evening when it was cooler uh, with his tent-making business. And it was during this time that the, the churches in the Lycus Valley uh, in, in Colossae, uh, which we have the letter to the Colossians, uh, the, the city of Heropolis and in Laodicea, which were two of the seven churches that were addressed, uh, the seven churches of Asia that are addressed by Jesus in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, in fact, probably all seven of those churches uh, were, were uh, founded during this time when Paul was here in Ephesus. And it says that there were healings, extraordinary healings 
and there, there were uh, exorcisms, and, and, the, and some of these things were even done through handkerchiefs, literally. Can I tell you what that literally is? It's a sweat rag and aprons. See, because, you know, here, here's what I picture in my mind. You know, Paul, he's working at his tent-making business in the morning and the evening, and, uh, you know, he's there working and, and working up a sweat. You know, they didn't have air conditioning like what we have. And so he would wipe his, wipe his brow and he'd lay that down. And so these Ephesians, now we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but Ephesus was a major center for sorcery. And they, you know, so they had this way of thinking, even as believers, and they would see that and say, oh, I'm going to take that. That's got something, you know, and they would take it and they would take it to somebody who was sick and, uh, or demon possessed and they, they would be, uh, they would be set free or they'd be healed, uh, from these aprons and sweat rags that Paul left, left lying around. We're not told anywhere that Paul sent them out, but people picked them up and this was happening. Now, these miracles remind us, it reminds me at least, very much of the, the miracle when the woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment. It's very similar to me in that. Uh, or, or even in the book of Acts where people were healed when they came in contact with Peter's shadow. Very similar. It, 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 see, here's what we got to understand. It wasn't the cloth. It wasn't the shadow. It wasn't the apron. There was nothing magical about those, even though the Ephesians might have been, been thinking that way initially. It was God. See, those things, what they were, they served as tangible articles of faith that God used to bring healing and freedom. It wasn't the hem of Jesus' garment that healed the woman who pressed in. It was that she believed, if I can touch the hem, he will heal me. It was the faith in Jesus, and he's the one who did it, not the hem of his garment. And the same situation, it was a situation where people said, you know, I'm too sick to go anywhere, but, but, but I, I, you know, their friend has this sweat rag from, from Paul, and they say, listen, this guy has been praying for people, and Jesus has been healing them, and they said, listen, I believe that, I, that he can heal me too. And that became a point of contact, a point where, where they could uh, to, to, to touch that physically, and their faith... Their faith in Jesus reached out to him, and then Jesus did the healing. So uh, it's the same kind of thing. And then we get to verse 13. This is one of my favorite stories. I love this story. It makes me laugh. It really does. So it says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them. I can picture that moment. Because I think apparently up until this point in time they hadn't actually encountered a real evil spirit. <laughs> so all of a sudden, now this one starts talking back. So it's probably going to freak them out anyway. Sort of like, you remember when King Saul went to see uh, a soothsayer and and, uh, and she, he went to see the witch, and, and then she started calling on the, the spirit of Samuel. And all of a sudden, it, it says that she's freaked out because it really was Samuel. <laughs> she's like, whoa! <laughs> Same kind of thing. Anyway, let's, let's, one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. 
when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, we need to understand here a little about the culture. Ephesus was a center of sorcery and magic at that time. They were very well known for, for this. And there were, there were many men who practiced the occult. Uh, and among practitioners of, the, of magic and, and the occult in ancient times in the city of Ephesus, they thought that the, the Jews, they, they held them in very high respect because they believed that they had especially effective spells at their command. In particular, the fact that the name of God, of the God of Israel, was not supposed to be pronounced out loud by vulgar lips. That was known generally among the pagans, and they misinterpreted that according to regular magical principles. See, because what they believed was, this is, you know, I mean, we understand this is not real, but, uh, you know, that, that, that this is not the case, but they believed that the power of the spell was in its secrecy. And if the spell was made, made known, then it would become powerless. So when Jews would cast out demons in the name of their God, and then they guarded the secrecy of his name and wouldn't even speak it out loud because they didn't want to commit blasphemy, they believed that was just a powerful spell and it had great power because they refused to speak it. So I had this confusion here. And so you have these Jews, the seven sons of Sceva. Now, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're very unlikely that they're actually practicing Jews as far as being in the temple. And the, the man Sceva uh, says that he was a chief priest. Uh, he may have just been claiming that title. Probably what it is, it's a family that's traveling around like grifters and they're saying, hey, you know, it will do this if you'll pay us. And it's just a scheme for them to, to, to get wealthy. Because people, and they still, people still use the name of Jesus to try to get, get rich. And God have mercy on their soul. But here they are. And they're, they're in the city of Ephesus. And they see these miracles performed in, in Jesus' name. And they see demons cast out in Jesus' name. And they tried to use the name of Jesus to do the same thing, though, though they didn't know it. They said, in the name of, of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And like I said, it's, all of a sudden the demon speaks back and says, now, and he actually uses two different words for know. He says, Jesus I know, which he uses the Greek word gnosko, which is uh, knowing experientially. I mean, I know Jesus. And, and he says, Paul I know, but it's more like I, I know about you know, I, I know all about Paul, but who in the world are you? Who are you? I need, I'm just telling you, this just must be the worst insult I can imagine. And so, you know, they, they tried to use an unfamiliar weapon and it exploded on them. And the man jumped up. And he beat them up and sent them out naked and ashamed. And I always laugh at that part. I know I shouldn't. Uh, I'm praying about that. But I do because, listen, I think back to my days when I was in high school. And my school was a rough school. There were a lot of fights. And almost every fight, there was a debate. There were some that were saying, no, that guy won. And other people were saying, no, that guy won. No, this guy won. No, that one won. 
But listen, if you go into a fight with your pants on and you come out without your drawers, you lost. And so there's just no debate. When you run out naked and bleeding, you, you lost that fight. And so the news of this event brought fear and the name of Jesus was magnified. Now, why did an event like this bring fear and magnify the name of Jesus? Right, okay, that's, that's the, I think, one of the big keys. Now they know that the power that's in the name of Jesus, the power that he has, is greater than the power of all the magicians. And, and you see, understanding that if Ephesus was filled with this demonic sorcery and demonic activity and, and the occult, you know, it, it actually, even when you read the book of Ephesians, you begin to see and understand why Paul wrote so much about spiritual warfare to the Ephesians because of where they were living. And, and, and now, you know, here they are, they, they, they see this and it, it showed, this whole event showed that the name of Jesus was a lot more than just a, a charm or a spell to be cast. It was a, a lot more than just some words that had some power in it. And the seven sons of Sceva, you know, they thought they could manipulate God for selfish means. They thought, oh, I can use the name of Jesus to manipulate a situation. And they were going to be able to make some money off the situation. And, 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 if, if, and they thought if they, if they just had the incantation right, if they could just get the techniques down, if they could just get the process perfected, then they could use God for their own purposes. But what they failed to realize, however, was that Christ's power cannot be accessed by reciting his name like a magic charm. It's a lot like uh, when Israel, uh, they, were, they were fighting against the Philistines. And, and, uh, and I didn't look this up. It didn't come to my mind until just now. But uh, the Philistines were more powerful. And the Israelites came up with the idea and said, hey, let's get the ark. The ark, we always win when we get the ark. And they went and got the ark. And when they got the ark, they were really confident in everything. But the Philistines were the ones saying, oh, no, we're in trouble. The God of the Israelites is there. Here's what happened. The Israelites lost. You know why they lost? It's because they thought the ark was like a, a magic charm to get them to victory. They were looking at the ark instead of the God of the ark. Even the Philistines realized it wasn't about the ark. And here, this is the same thing we got to understand. It's not about being able to just say the name of Jesus. You see, God works his, his power only through those he chooses and only at times that he determines. And invoking the name of Jesus is only effective if you know Jesus personally. It's not about saying the name. It's about knowing the person. However, even when you know him, beware of thinking that you can control God by using your clever prayers and by saying certain words, you can make him do what you want him to do. God is sovereign and he is free to do what he deems to be best. He is a sovereign God and we can't, we can't manipulate him. Amen? So anyway, two different groups responded to this. The first thing was, Believers responded, 
And they began to confess. They said, okay, you know what? I've come to Jesus, but I'm still, I was still dabbling in some of this occult stuff. Now I know I shouldn't be doing that. But also the sorcerers, the professionals, they, they began to believe because they said, oh, hey, this is not what we thought it was. And so they, they, had, a, they had a big city bonfire. And we're told that all these magicians, all these sorcerers and, and, and the believers that still had them in their house, they, they brought their books out, of, out uh, uh, books of sorcery out and they burned them. And now, now, you know, the thing about the burning was, what it was, it was a public confession of saying, I have found a greater power. I don't need these anymore. And by burning them, I'm saying, I can never go back. It was repentance. It was turning their back on it. Their, their faith in Jesus had a price. We were talking about counting the cost. We're told that the sum total of the books burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. In some translations specifically says drachmas. And if, it was, if the pieces of silver were drachmas, then each coin represented one day's wages for a common laborer. So 50,000 pieces of silver represented, get this, more than 136 years of continuous labor with no days off. A conservative estimate of the value today would be over $10 million. That was the cost. That was the value of those books. And they said, we found something. We found a power that's greater. We don't need this power. And we spent a lot of money, but we found something a lot more valuable than all the money it costs to buy all these things. He's what we want. He's what we want. And we're told that the result, and we'll, we'll close with this, was that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And the word of God prevailed so mightily that it impacted the economy of the city. We're going to see in, in coming verses, uh, next week we'll see it, that, that those who were making idols and selling them, and they were making money off of that, they began to feel the financial crunch as fewer and fewer people were buying false gods and buying these idols, and instead they were worshiping the true and the living God. And so they, the city's economy was beginning to change because the gospel was being set free and the power of God, the power of the word of God was prevailing in such a way. Let, let me bring it into modern language, modern situation. That'd be like going into, you know, where uh, the gospel breaking forth in Memphis and the power of the word of God having such an impact there that all of a sudden, you know, that, that, that uh, places that, that sell, that, that the bars are shutting down and, and, and the, the, the joints where they've got, you know, topless dancers, they're shutting down and, and the, 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 the places that sell pornography, they start feeling the financial crunch because nobody's using those places. Nobody's going there because Jesus is setting them free and they say, I don't need that. I don't want that anymore. And it changed the fundamental economy of the city which was a real huge threat to some, we'll see. Well, that's why a riot broke out. We'll get to that next week. See, what we've got to understand, it says the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. We all know this. The, the, God's word, 
is living and powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to, to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is what we know, and this is why we don't proclaim our opinions in this church. We don't. When you're testifying, when you're telling people about Jesus, you're not there to try to tell them your ideas or your philosophy of life. This is the word of God. This is what we proclaim. This is what we stand on because this is what has the power to change lives. The word of God will prevail in every situation. The word of God will go forth and will not return void. It is the word of God that he has given to us that's empowered by the Holy Spirit that's going to make a difference in your life, in this church, in this community. It's the truth of his word. And you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for setting us free by the power of your word.